You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as the Tutor Radiographer in Medical Imaging at RCH. As we're all aware, there are many things that can go wrong in healthcare situations. Some of these are related to certain decision-making or resources, but others may be related to the unpredictability of healthcare and situations where things are changing rapidly. The important part of all of this is ensuring that you're as prepared as you can be and where you look at situations and think, I've seen this before. Well, this all relates to simulation. So I have with me today, Dr. Rebecca or Beck Sabo. Beck is an OBS-Gynae specialist with the Royal Women's Hospital, but is also a medical educator through the University of Melbourne. She's also the lead of the Gandal Simulation Service at the Royal Women's Hospital. Welcome, Beck. Thanks for having me, Steve. So, Beck, let's talk about simulation. Can you explain a little bit about simulation and the different spaces in which simulation can occur? Sure. So I think the first thing is to say that simulation is anything that replicates reality. And the thing that people are most used to for simulation in healthcare is probably some of the training they might have done, perhaps uh, when they were at their health profession's initial undergraduate or or degrees, that type of thing, Mm -hmm. whether that's team training or skills training or that type of thing. But in the community, uh, surf lifesaving and others might, you know, be learning CPR or basic life support in the healthcare context. But simulation actually comes from high reliability or uh, and high risk areas. So thinking about space, aviation, nuclear, and also train, that type of thing, yeah. as well as emergency services and armed forces. So when we hear about in the media them doing war gaming, that's a type of simulation because okay. it's anything that replicates reality where you want to be able to work out what you would do in that scenario, for example. Yeah. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit more then about the... Gandalf Simulation Service. Yep. So Gandalf Simulation Service is a translational simulation service based at the Royal Women's Hospital here in Melbourne, just down the road from the Royal Children's Hospital. We're partnered with the University of Melbourne and we've also partnered with the Bond Translational Simulation Collaborative, which is based up at Bond University in the Gold Coast. Okay. When I say translational simulation, what I mean by that is some of what, what I mentioned before in terms of simulation and team training or the classic kind of learning adult life support and those sorts of things mm. would be more what we describe as simulation-based education. But using simulation for quality improvement in the real environment, both to diagnose what might be happening in terms of either a system or a pathway or a team or even testing equipment, and then potentially also working out solutions for, well, you know, and workarounds, those sorts of things that can be either system using simulation as a tool for systems in, in, and quality improvement or Vic Brazel, who's the head of Bond Sim, Translational Simulation Collaborative, coined the term tra- translational simulation. So that's a lot of what we do. So we're talking more about rather than your, like your generalistic, you know, basic life support training, we're talking yep. more about like specific training to certain situations. So not necessarily training even. One of the examples I can give you of some of the work we did during COVID, for example. So the Royal Women's Hospital is a standalone women's and newborn hospital primarily. And we are co-located with the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is an adult hospital. During the waves of the pandemic, 
trigger warning for anybody who's uncomfortable talking about that yep. <laughs> or hearing about that. If there was a really unwell um, pregnant woman with, with COVID, they were actually needed to be admitted to the COVID ward at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Right. But they didn't have any obstetric services. Yeah. So if they needed us in a hurry, then they, w- they would have to call us and then there needed to be processes and pathways, but those had never existed. Yeah. So often in those type of situations, somebody might like write a guideline or something down and I would say that that is workers imagined or possibly workers prescribed. Yeah. Because nobody, it's never happened before in that particular instance. And you could argue that of many guidelines and many processes. Yeah. And no one really knew how that was going to work. And so in that instance, we simulated that. And then the guideline and the processes and the pathways and how that was going to work was created on the basis of that. We actually ran a scenario with patients, with staff in the real environment and said what worked and what didn't work, why why not. This was during COVID as well. Yeah, and so refined the process from that. And yeah, we've right. applied that same type of simulation for stuff like massive transfusion protocol testing, yeah. for massive blood loss, and also during the electronic medical record implementation. And it can be applied for other things as well. Yeah, right. So it's got a different, rather than tra- training, it's kind of how do we actually improve things in, in the environment for teams and yeah. patients. How do you think this has improved your service delivery prior to the implement- implementation of the Gandal service? Well, so prior to Gandal simulation service existing, simulation at the women's was very ad hoc. We didn't really have a simulation program. Mm-hmm. I think um, some of that is, you know, the women's, um, like the Royal Children's, has been there for a long time, yeah. so since 1856. Um, I think I got that year right. And um, so I think there's a tendency kind of, you know, we've we've been doing this, uh, you know, the women's way for a really long time. That's how we do it. That's how we've always done it. Yeah. But, you know, the most dangerous phrase in the English language is we've always done it this way. And I think it can be, you know, so I think having a dedicated simulation service there has meant we have both been able to ensure that simulation-based education and team training and and procedural training and all those sorts of things are not ad hoc and that there's an evidence-based approach to it as well as resources both in terms of simulation educators as well as any equipment or other stuff as well as being able to introduce this type of simulation for quality improvement. Yeah, okay. This is probably a very loaded question here, but what effect (laughs) would you say that no available simulation service was having on the way that you would perform clinically? Well, I'm obviously very biased about that because yeah. I'm the person that went about establishing the simulation and wanting it to continue. I'm also somebody who is able to step back and see another point of view, I guess, or, or would like to think that I'm like that. Like, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Mm. I think it's more that I can tell you what I can see since we've established. I think we have to say that there is some value in the way that we have practiced healthcare for a long period of time and that I certainly have worked in places, including the women's, where you can have excellent teamwork and people working together and knowing what they need to do and, you know, centre of excellence and all those sorts of things, but that we always strive to be better. Yeah. And so for me, it's not so much about things were necessarily bad, but it's that we can do this better. We can do things and learn things and do them as a team where we don't have a real patient in front of us where there is therefore no harm to the patient. And we can also interrogate things and say, hey, why did that work? What happened here? And I think, as I said, like some of that was happening ad hoc, but having a dedicated simulation 
um, program or service means that it becomes not ad hoc and it becomes something that is normal and something that we do here. True. But I think in order to be able to set up such a program, you'd have to be able to identify the gaps so that you can fill those gaps in with such a program. That was one of the arguments was, well, we, we aren't necessarily doing regular team training. We, it's on an ad hoc basis and fairly difficult to be able to do the things that we need to, to be doing in mm. terms of maternity simulation, neonatal simulations, all those sorts of things, as well as um, maybe some, some of the procedural training and surgical stuff and anaesthetic and those sorts of things. Yeah. And so that was the, the argument for the value add. Yeah, absolutely. You gave me a situation before during COVID about how you kind of use that, that simulation experience. Have you got another couple of other simulations that you can run through that you regularly do through the simulation service? Some of what we m- most routinely do would be maternity interprofessional team training simulations. Mm-hmm. And so there's a few different as well as and newborn. And so there's a few different scenarios we would do for that. Ones that I would put more under a banner of in some way, simulation-based training for um, emergencies yeah. would be things like postpartum hemorrhage after a birth or a cord prolapse or, or an eclamptic fit, those, that type of thing. And the way we're approaching that is not purely in terms of simulation-based education to learn maybe the algorithms or the medications and those sorts of things. It's also because we do it in primarily in the real environment. Mm. It's also testing what's in the room at that time, what the, how's it stocked, mm-hmm. uh, where the equipment is, does it work the most efficiently as it can for the team members mm-hmm. um, because we don't restock the rooms in any way, shape or form and we don't take anything with us to the room yeah. other than a simulated participant, for example, um, and some signage so that everybody knows a simulation is happening from a safety point of view. Part of what we're doing in those scenarios is testing, do people know where the drugs are? Are they there? Has the our, our rooms and other things being restocked? And, you know, things, and then getting that feedback from participants of, oh, this worked for me, but this didn't, that wasn't there. And then examples for neonatal emergencies as well. Also, there's some gynae and anaesthetic procedural stuff. And are they always planned in advance for all participants? Or do you sometimes say to a participant, hey, in two minutes, you're coming in here, we're doing a simulation, just to kind of almost test them. Just, you know, like, like if you're looking at, like, say, you know, do you have the right stock in a, in a room? Just <coughs> yep. kind of testing that kind of situation. Um, so I personally have an aversion to what I call a gorilla simulation, and gorilla with a um, UE, where, you know, it's a complete surprise because yeah. I think, you know, psychological safety is such an important component about what we do in simulation and putting somebody into an emergency situation and on the spot and and being observed by their colleagues in the real environment is mm. challenging enough. Mm. And also most of the simulation we do is during double staffing time. So, it, so someone is literally on shift and maybe they're about to go home or maybe they're about to start their shift. Right. So psychological safety and any impact um, for the rest of the day is really significant because they're not there for a workshop. I have an aversion to just grabbing someone and putting them in a simulation. We, whenever we invite somebody to a simulation, they know about it. They have the opportunity to read um this we actually give them the scenario so okay. they know what it's going to be about so that they can read up any clinical practice guideline or any other information they they want to beforehand as well as we provide them often with 
you know, this is maybe the didactic component of the knowledge bit. Yeah. Because we're not testing that. Like that's not the purpose of the simulation is not the didactic or the knowledge bit. Yeah. It's the team component in the real environment and mm. how that's working for us most of the time rather than the knowledge bit or the skills bit. Yeah. And so on the basis of that, I almost, because I, I would never say never or always, <laughs> but I have a strong aversion to just grabbing someone. Every now and again, we might have someone say, oh, you're doing a sim, can I come as well? Yeah. But part of our pre-brief is we will, anything we've emailed out to someone and said, hey, we're doing a simulation tomorrow on you know, a shoulder dystocia and a baby that needs resuscitation after that, mm. we'll go through that again during our pre-brief. So every now and again, if somebody's there and either wants to participate or something like that, they might come in at the last minute. But as yeah. a general rule, it's an invite knowledge, ability to ask us questions yeah. and kind of prepare. No, that makes perfect sense. Have you, I'm assuming that you have, but what research do you, have you done on your service that demonstrates the benefits to staff and patient care that you can share with us today? Uh, so I'm currently doing a PhD and that research is ongoing. <laughs> is my answer so, to that So question. no comment? Is that what you say? <laughs> well, I, that's the holy grail, you know, so I think that it's really... Uh, every all of us in simulation would love to be able to say, here is this paper that demonstrates this uh, this particular simulation work absolutely benefits patients and benefits staff. Mm. Challenging research to produce and say, you know, one plus one equals two. Yeah, there's some nice research that is coming from various people in terms of impact on culture, and that includes the group that I mentioned before in terms of bond simulation. Yeah. So in our next podcast as well, we're going to be talking about a specific example that has been used in the emergency department at RCH. Mm -hmm. You've done an in-situ simulation on, say, an emergency cesarean. Mm -hmm. Let's just say that's that's what your simulation is. Yep. Now, you're fully prepared to tackle such a case when it happens in real life. Yep. Or at least you think you are. Yep. And of course, in, every, in most situations, you're always going to come across something that you haven't simulated. Yep. Can you tell us how simulation might still help with even capturing the things that you haven't prepared for, for example? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things in that. I think one of the things in terms of thinking about when we are designing simulation or, or, or with participants both in a pre-brief and a debrief and some of the principles that we're trying to instill in people is that thing of uncertainty and having that this, this is how we expected it to happen, but this is what happened. Mm. Often within the debrief, we'll understanding why one thing happened when we would expect something else or why this happened for one particular participant and what they were thinking. I think some of it is about understanding uncertainty and understanding complexity and understanding that every time we go into an emergency or as work together as a team, that it is completely different. Yeah. When we're talking before about, you know, what are things like before simulation? Well, I think with experience, all people in healthcare we learn that over time. Yeah. Human beings are complex. Um, every human being is different. So somebody with pneumonia or appendicitis or a maternity emergency, whatever, each time looks different. It's never identical. Mm. Even if you had exactly the same team of people, that patient is different. Yeah. The day is different, those sorts of things. The more simulation you do and the more you have those reflective conversations and you hear from other participants, you start to go, oh, there is necess not necessarily one right or wrong way or expectation and it is okay that things go a different way. 
is learning that how to respond to those things in an emergency, including our own emotions and our own responses yeah. when we're in an emergency. So the more you do that, um, you know, if you, if we use the analogy comparing it to elite sport training, like that's one of the reasons people train, and that includes like that nervous energy or feeling that you might have just before you start a race or do something. It's learning yeah. how to actually deal with that, and I think that's one of the things of the more simulation you can do, and the more realistic of an of a of an emergency that might be life threatening or scary or where something unexpected happens, then if you're faced with that in real life, your cognitive load of being able to not be caught up in the emotion of, the, of that or the adrenaline rush and actually being able to go, hang on a second, I'm just going to stop here and do this. I really like that analogy of the, the elite sports person that does all of that training because you kind of think, you know, you, you train for months, years in some cases or whatever, then you get to the actual event and no one's actually prepared you for the fact that the opposition has already done the same thing and may be a little bit better than you and you're like, oh, I'm not quite as good as I thought I was or something like that. Like it's just about how you kind of deal with those situations. Yeah, and it, it might not even be about the skill, you know, like it's about how you deal with the adrenaline rush or yeah. those feelings about what happens or if somebody injures and they go off and somebody else comes on or I've never had to stand opposite a New Zealand team and deal with a haka, but I can imagine that some of the teams that are about to go into the Women's World Cup yeah. um, or, or others would be like, well, you know, I have no idea if they train for that. And like, but I assume that there's some mental rehearsal that happens Absolutely. to go, how are we going to face that so that we can then still go on the pitch and play? And so some of it, and I think we're not, we haven't always been traditionally good at that in healthcare of like, well, that's just, you know, for many, it, that's just the way it's been. Mm. And some of what we do in simulation is around, okay, well, your heart rate might go up and this might happen. And, you know, how do we then, how do we deal with that? Mm. So when we do a debrief, we, we classically talk about that we'll have a reactions phase and say to people, how do you feel? And it's not how you feel you went, it's how you feel. Sometimes that is overplayed a bit and can be done a lot before you then get into well, what went well and what could be better mm. um, or improved what are, and what are the opportunities for learning. But I think one of the things is about starting to understand how we feel but also how other people feel. Like mm. the number of times I will go into that and someone will go and they're a bit hesitant and then someone will go, that felt really awkward. And then other people go, oh, yeah, I felt awkward too. Yeah. And sometimes it's about even somebody senior or who's done it for a while saying that and then you start to get the grads and the, you know, interns or the student nurses or, or whatever saying, oh, it's okay that I feel like that. Yeah. Because. It's about it, knowing that it's a safe space to be able to kind of just express those feelings. Yeah. yeah. And I think so often we don't talk about those things in the real environment, partly because we're just getting on and doing our job and often there's no time because yeah. we're going from one thing to another thing to another thing. But partly it's because we have not been encouraged to have those conversations. Mm, mm. So, you know, one of the things is do we need simulation to be having those conversations or can we encourage those conversations after real clinical events so we normalise that? Yeah. And I think that would be useful. I still think there's a place for simulation, but it would be nice if we could, you know, cross that over from simulation into clinical. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be some very clear benefits, of course, with simulation. What are some of the challenges? It can be resource intensive, usually in terms of primarily staffing. So I think just having a well-developed program and with the expertise and support of organisations, as well as some of the other resources, depending on what your needs are in terms of either mannequins or augmented reality or virtual reality or all those things that, that are going to come, I think, in future. 
I think for our context in terms of a lot of the work we do because it's in situ in the real environment, it's the recognition that clinical always takes priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think even if you're in doing lab-based or, or simulation centre-based simulation, if you're taking people, you know, you've got to get the people there. So if we've got workforce issues, hard to get people out of clinical because we need to be filling rosters. Yeah. So I think that's always a tension. Mm. And that comes back to your question of, you know, are you doing research to demonstrate value and impact for patient care? Because if you can demonstrate that, then you can say, well, no, on this particular day, this person's doing simulation because we know that shows benefit Um, versus we're taking them out of a shift where we really need that person in a shift. Yeah. And I think the other thing for us is, you know, if we are in the middle of a simulation and or we're about to start something and something happens, so we have no go criteria, um, which are pretty clear where we would cancel a simulation on the basis of um, some criteria. Okay. So are, are you talking about like, you know, something that may have be triggering for someone else, for example, like let's say you've had an incident that's happened within a week or something like that of, of the simulation happening. That might be one example. Yeah. So yeah, like if we were about to do a massive transfusion protocol simulation mm. and there'd just been an incident and something had happened and there was distress involved or something like that or a bad outcome, then we might cancel. Right. The other thing might be if it's like really practical things like it's too busy, the room is needed, the bed is needed, the staff are needed, we don't have enough facilitators because unexpectedly somebody's sick or something, mm. we can't replace them. Um, so some of them are really practical logistical things and some of them are, yeah, sometimes if there's been an incident and we've made a call that it's not safe to continue. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And how about how long it takes to coordinate a simulation itself? Like, you know, if you've got something that's going to be where you're going to be utilising a lot of different craft groups in an interprofessional session, like on average? I think it depends is the right answer to that. So when you said before, like, what are some of the regular simulations that you do? So for a lot of our maternity and newborn emergency ones, they're ones that we might do because we do simulation two or three times a week. Um, So for that kind of regular ones that we do, and, you know, the nice thing, I guess, about particularly for maternity and newborn and, and a little bit gyny in that most of those simulations we do, there's not that many iterations. Mm. Like there's kind of like we'd have 10 regular ones we do. So those ones now for us, we can probably turn those over with not that much intensive preparation for that. And we have a system in place for scheduling people and those sorts of things. Mm. There's still a decent amount of work. And I think any type of education or bringing people together requires preparation. And if you get that preparation right, then that's the key to, to making it work. But where it versus some of those other bigger testing translational simulations that I mentioned, like the work we did during COVID or the massive transfusion protocol, that type of thing, that can take weeks to prepare. And yeah. that's also because you're wanting to do often a needs analysis or some work beforehand to really understand what is happening kind of on the ground before you run that because you want really big bang for your buck. Mm. And so in order to design the most realistic scenario that's going to answer whatever question you're trying to interrogate, you need to do a whole lot of work before that to design it. And often those simulations, you have many, 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 many people. So it might be 20 to 30 people to try and coordinate. Yeah. So those can take weeks to months sometimes, depending on what the work is. Yeah, 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 understandable. So I'm just going to give you a recent example of a situation or a simulation that I came across in medical imaging. I wasn't actually personally involved with this one, Mm -hmm. but it was simulating the air reduction of an intersusception. I'm not sure exactly how it went, but the feedback that I heard from the staff that were involved were actually quite positive. To simulate the intersusception itself, they used a bike tyre with a clip on it. 
So it was something that was very, very simple that had to be kind of just put together because that was the only resources that they had. So for these types of situations where departments want to do such simulations but don't really have access to such a service like the Gandal service yep. or suitable resources, what would you recommend for how departments should prepare and enact these simulations? So again, it depends. I am a fan of low-cost simulation equipment. It means that it's more likely to happen rather than saying, well, we don't have the money to be able to spend on Correct. this. Correct. Yeah. And I think that buying fancy toys is really nice and fun, but what you don't want is then something sitting being either only used once um, or sitting maybe being used once a year. Mm-hmm. And then ideally any funding that is is there is really that you are getting return on investment and that often that therefore means investing in people and having expert and enough simulation practitioners and whether or not they're doing simulation-based education or, or translational simulation, which have slightly different skill mixes. Yeah. That's a really clever idea to have created that. And often people who understand the pathology are the ones who are going to go, who are going to say, oh, well, this is what happens and this is what you need. And it might be that somebody in the simulation team will go, oh, maybe we'll try this. Or it might be that you've got somebody who's particularly creative, yeah. um, has a very artistic mind and like, and they're that person who's always going to come up with that. Yeah. The other thing is emailing someone, calling somebody, you know, sometimes calling out on social media of, hey, has anybody, and, and having access to a community of practice and knowing what have you done in this situation. Yeah, right. That's a good idea. And being able to talk to people. One of the best simulation pieces of equipment that we have is something that was created f- from a conversation that I had with someone in a refugee camp on the Thai and my border. Yeah, okay. So um, I used to live in Thailand and I've still done quite a lot of work and go back at least once a year, except during pandemic. And so I was in Mela Refugee Camp, which is one of the oldest refugee camps in the world. Yeah. Um, and I was there to um, teach something called Advanced Life Support in Obstetrics, which is a maternity and newborn emergency course. Rose McGrady, who's an Australian doctor who's been based there for a very long time, said to me, we really, really, really want to teach them about manual removal of placenta. And I'm going to explain something fairly vivid, but it's where a clinician puts their entire arm into the uterus and manually removes the placenta. In Australia, that would only ever be done with somebody either having a spinal anaesthetic or a general anaesthetic in the operating theatre. Yeah. Like we kind of had that conversation of really you wouldn't be doing that in the refugee camp because you don't have access to analgesia and anaesthetic and all that type of thing. But it kind of like spurred the discussion of, well, how would you create this thing and what is out there? So we Googled and I spoke to some other people and, you know, some of the things that are out there were out there at the time were a bit expensive and weren't quite right. And then I came back to Australia and I had a chat with a colleague of mine, Karen Moffat, who's a um, clinical midwifery um, coordinator at the women's mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, I think this, like, it's like Velcro would really, really like simulate this really well. And she was like, I wonder if we can paper mache a uterus and then like put in Velcro and a, and a cotton placenta, which yeah. is what we did. And wow. so Karen in her like, you know, garage one weekend, paper mache a uterus and then painted it and then you know, put in some Velcro and, you know, made a cotton uh, placenta. And that's what we still use. And it's still the thing that is, and then we perfected it over time. So you got a um, old windsheeter. And so the neck, it was one of those ones that kind of used the, the sleeves to kind of, so you could, you could simulate the going into the cervix yeah, right. as well. 
Um, and that's what we still use. And it's, there's some other kind of, you know, latex silicon ones that are available now, but I still think that one is the one that works the best. Wow. And it was paper mache and cotton and Velcro. And reproducible, like, as in like something that you can keep using over time, or you Correct. do, or do you can't, you don't just have to make a new paper mache every so time. So we've had to, we've used it over and over and over again. I think we've now used that one for six years, and it's died a death yeah, because right. um, someone was quite rough one time, and so the velcro has kind of come off the inside of it, um, and so we're going to have to make another one. But we used it over and over and again for six years, and really to make another one, aside from like me actually having to be bothered to go get the equipment and do it one weekend, yeah. um, and not necessarily as artistic and crafty as Karen did it. There's like these like bits that almost look like they would be vessels and stuff. It's amazing. Oh, wow. What's already available and what can we pay for? But the reality is most people, even if they've got a funding source, you need to be using your funds responsibly. And yeah, every now and again, it's like, well, how often are you doing an interception sim? Yeah. Like, and this is the and first also, one that I've ever seen. So yeah, and sometimes we are creating things that therefore either it's single use or it will work there or or not in something else. Yeah. The other thing we've been doing, which again was introduced to us by Vic Brazel and team from um, Bond Translational Simulation Collaborative, is something called VEMS, which is visually enhanced mental um, simulation. Yeah. And that's photographs that are printed out and laminated. Okay. And sometimes that works really, really well, and it depends a little bit on the purpose of the simulation and the group that you've got with you. The photo we currently have is a photo that we lifted off the internet, which was publicly available, and it's a photograph of a woman who who looks like she's in labour and pushing right? and happens to have a drip in and like in a hospital gown and in a hospital bed and has a particular look on her face, and we've printed it out kind of almost life-size. Mm and laminated it. And so there are situations where we will put that either on the table or on the bed or that type of thing, and we'll use that in place of either mannequin or simulated participant. And yeah. we will often work with an actual human being as a simulated participant yeah. so that because so that we can get that communication piece. Mm, mm. And in this particular instance, because we've got an inanimate object of a photo, we might have somebody play the voice. And, and the feedback we've had from participants is, they engage more with the photo than they do with a mannequin because a mannequin is plastic, but the photo is a human being who's got facial expression. Right. With students, for example, I'll ask them, I'll go, what, what do you feel when you see this and what do you think is happening? Mm. Um, and they might go, oh, I think she's in pain. I think she's unhappy. I think, and then you might ask someone else, they go, oh, I think she's pushing. So, uh. and it's one, it's one of the other advantages of that is for people to start to see that, you know, when we go, go and go and see that patient and tell me what you think, we all see the world differently. Mm. We all, and what we see when we look at a patient is also different. Yeah. So you can use those things in different ways where if you've got a mannequin there, the mannequin is the mannequin is the mannequin. So there's different ways to do, and that's again, low cost. You need a printer and a laminator. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's like, I'd never thought about it like that in terms of like how to establish your resources. Here at the Quaternary Hospital, the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, like mm. that's still one of my favourite things to mm. to use in the clinical world, and that's true translation. Like, but in the clinical kangaroo care and all these other things started in low and middle income countries, and then now it's what we do here. Yeah. So I think more expensive and, and fancier is not always better. Sometimes yeah. it's what we need, but often it isn't. And I do think when you said, "Well, what are the challenges?" The challenge is sometimes we need we we are going to do sims where we might not be using it over and over again, like the interception, thinking outside the box, using things that aren't that expensive. 
easier to set for anybody else to set up. Yeah, yeah. Look, thanks, Beck, for, for taking the time to come and speak with us today. Um, the Gandalf service actually sounds <coughs> extremely useful, but I hope that we've been able to provide some ideas for those wanting to introduce simulation both into their departments or as an interprofessional exercise as a whole. Uh, as I kind of mentioned before, in our next episode, we're going to be chatting with Kim Price and Dom uh, Chincotta from the RCH Emergency Department, who's going to run us through a specific example of how they've utilised simulation to improve their service for anaphylaxis. Thanks again for the chat, Beck. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts, where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.